Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Nylon 9 podcast. Tonight we're going to party like it's podcast 199199. Hello. Four more years. <laughs> it is the 199th episode of the Nylon 9 podcast. That voice, of course, is Andrea Cleary. Beside Hello. me, how are you? Beside me. Not too bad. Beside you and yet so far. <laughs> so far away. What's your it, t-shirt now? In one ear, out the other. I'm wearing a Gilliband shirt. Oh, that's nice. Got I haven't seen band. that before. Uh, jumper. Nice. But a Merchy Christmas. Very good. A Merchy um, Christmas purchase. Among many. Yeah, get um two hundred next week. Yeah, what are we gonna do for it? Don't know. Do, I we we don't know. <laughs> You're just reliable last minute guys and gals. Two hundred is just a number. <laughs> It's just a number, exactly. You're only your podcast is only as young as the episode you feel. Um, <laughs> that's what I that's what I've always said. Oh. Um, but yeah, so um, this episode kind of started out one thing, started out as a strokes episode, but instead we're actually going to talk a bit more broadly mm. about the kind of vinyl revival and. B-sides and A-sides and the sort of the role of singles and B-sides in a culture where vinyl is kind of just coming back um, and what vinyl kind of means to musicians and music collectors yeah. now that we're in this kind of resurgence. Uh, but before that, you haven't seen anything about the Grammys, am I right? No, but uh, <laughs> I saw you share, um, and I know there was people listening to How to Win a Grammy, the episode we did a couple of years I, back. I, I do still believe it's my greatest work. Like, yeah, yeah. I still think it's like if you want to know, it tells you. <laughs> that's it. it. And Ooh. you know, as, as somebody who's currently doing a PhD, I still think it's the best bit of research I've ever done in my life. Is that right. episode? So, um, please do go and listen to it if you haven't already, because it is. Um, the Grammys are fascinating. They don't mean anything, but it's a lot of fun to learn about why. I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, every year I still sort of, you know, before the Grammys, if someone were to ask me, oh, are you going to watch the Grammys? I'd be like, no, it's bullshit. But then the morning after I wake up and, you know, you get some notifications on your phone about it and you're like, yeah, go on then. Suck me <laughs> in, Grammys. Well, we like, had a bank holiday this week, uh, this week uh, in Ireland, mm. which was the first. So, uh, that St. Bridget's uh, bank holiday. So it was actually Thank you, passing British. by a little bit because I wasn't paying attention to any media on Monday because it was bank holiday That's and good. it was a really nice thing to do. But I did catch up some of the bits. Uh, I mean, obviously, the thing about the Grammys in terms of the actual winners, it always ends up being like so American. You're like, what? Mm, um, you know, yes. whatever. <laughs> well, not, a, not for funny. album of the year this year. A, a British man won that. Um, Who could that have been? Who could that have been? It was Harry Styles won Album of the Year for Harry's House, which is a absolutely fine album. Um, I think it was a major shock. So the expectation, I think, was that Beyonce was going to take Album of the Year for Renaissance. She didn't. She broke some records. Um, she's she's now the person with the most Grammys ever. I think I haven't fact checked that, and I will not fact check it. But that's well, that's I apparently can confirm it. Your but lack I mean, fact checking by being your fact checker. Yes, thank thank you, thank you very much. Um, but am I right in thinking right that she hasn't won the big four, as in she hasn't done well in the big no, four? No, she, she she's never she's never won album. Yeah, she's never won album of the year. The most likely ones that she was going to win album of the year for were Lemonade. She lost out to Adele that year, and this one, Renaissance. She's basically she lost won out to Harry almost everything. 
<laughs> other than the, mm. the big ones. Maybe I think she won Grammy. Did she it. win Grammy for a song of the year? Maybe. Let's have a look. Did she, maybe she won song of the year. But, you know, she, she, she might have the most amount of Grammys. But in terms of the big four, she's not very well decorated in those categories. I know that much anyway. Um, which I which I think is interesting. I mean, I think she's definitely made some albums of the year for sure. Yeah. Like, but yeah, what else happened at the Grammys? Um, Taylor Swift and Harry Styles were seen chatting, um, all friendly like, which is very nice to see after their relationship that was definitely real and not at all a, just a press relationship back in the back in the old days when he was still in One Direction, I believe. Uh, there's a lot of talk on Taylor Swift online spaces that he might um, he might you know, appear in one way or another on on her re-recording of Style or in a music video for Style because the 1989 album is the next one to get the re-release. Um, I don't believe that's going to happen, but I'm I'm hoping it happens. That would be amazing. Um, Lizzo was amazing. She performed very much live. It was very clear that she was performing live, and her voice is just getting better. Um, she's amazing. She, she she was my winner of the Grammys. Okay. Like of of the Grammy night, she was my winner. She was my favorite outfit on the red carpet. I know nothing about fashion, but she just she was dressed as basically like a big flower. Um, and yeah, she was just very supportive of everyone who was winning and was just just being a good gal, you know, just being a nice a nice person. So yeah, Lizzo was my my winner. Um, and she won for rec- record of the year for about damn time. That's believe, yeah, so. best song on the album easily. Kind of, I, I oh, yeah. say, I mean, yeah, I've kind of gone off Lizzo a little bit just because there was a lot of Lizzo for a long time. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. And the album just overall I'm, wasn't I'm great. sort of ready for her to come back. I'm, I'm ready for a new, a new era from Lizzo, I think. Um, but yeah, she's great. I started following her TikTok it's really good. You're just um, fully into the TikTok now, huh? I love TikTok. Yeah. yeah. Or, um, <laughs> I had to replace Twitter with something. Did so. <laughs> you entertain or consider um, buying any tickets for the Beyonce Renaissance tour? No, absolutely not. No, no. She has enough money. I'm sorry, but those prices <laughs> are, I'm, I'm actually, look, did I spend 90 quid on a Harry Styles ticket for Slane? Yes. But it's slain, right? I kind of I understand why it needs to be that price. Beyonce does not need to be charging the amount of money that she's charging, and yeah, I guess I'm a bit less interested in. I, I've always been a bit less interested in those kinds of pop shows, as a yeah, I don't know the the, the kind of the very curated yeah. like every every step is choreographed sort of show. Well, I mean, Homecoming is, saw, is an I, amazing show, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I I, I, I as in. I, I'm not that bothered seeing it live because I'm assuming that she's going to film it. Right, yeah. Um, so I'll just kind of watch that. I'm not I'm not as pushed to kind of see this album uh, live. But I mean, you know, if someone wants to send me to London, I won't, I won't stop. Yeah, them. I don't think she's but, um, needing anyone to do press for this somehow. So you'd be well, look, I'm just saying if Beyonce needs some PR in Ireland <laughs> and I think she badly needs some PR in Ireland. No one knows who she is. Uh, get in, get in touch with me. Um, but no, congratulations to everyone who did get tickets. I saw, I saw somebody, I can't remember who it was on my Instagram stories. They were like, uh, like a screenshot of like, you've purchased your ticket. And they were like, I've no idea where Sunderland is, but that's where I'm going. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did actually look at those a- tickets just out of interest and I had myself to the queue mm. about an hour within an hour of uh, them going on sale and uh, just out of interest, mm. I added myself to the queues. At Edinburgh, it was like 300,000 in the list. Uh, same with Christ. France as well in Paris. And then Sunderland, <laughs> I got I got into a, like, it was like 8,000 or something. I was like, I'm just going to stay here and see Doable. what happens. And uh, yeah. I got offered tickets, but they were $205 or, or 205 um, sterling pounds, Brexit pounds oh, each. Okay. And um, mm. I was just like, nah. But I was just interested. She I just kind of wanted to see. Money. <laughs> I wanted to see what was what I was going to be offered. And uh, there was a VIP yeah. package on risers for two and a half grand each. 
Uh, but that was the cheapest one I saw anyway on offer in Sunderland. They were standing Jeez. tickets as well. They weren't seated tickets. So 205. I'd like to, when when the gigs do roll around, we, we if we could find someone who does the VIP and interview them <laughs> about it, about the experience. Because like, I've always wondered like, what is what is the VIP? Yeah, I like, think, what, I mean, it's, it going says on it's on the risers behind the stage kind of thing. And then you get early access or some shit. Anyway, it's probably not worth it, obviously, unless you're... Is there crack there, though? Probably like, do not. You think? But, you, think? you know, it's about it's being probably... seen, I presume, you know, it's about being seen. Maybe you can yeah, be seen. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I think there was some dynamic yeah. price and stuff going on on that uh, gig as well, because uh, 205 quid, it, it seemed to be... There was some mention of dynamic pricing on it. I must check it and uh, see mm. if I can find out. But and and did you see what kind of seats it was for 200 It was standing. Minutes? It was actually standing. So oh, that's why. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, no, that's too much. Way too much money. <laughs> yeah. No. Anyway, um, yeah. another band that were nominated for the Grammys and who didn't win um, is an Italian band called Maniskin. And they gave me a, a fairly <laughs> big chuckle today. Uh, not them themselves. Their music is pretty rubbish anyway but uh maybe an easy target but jeremy d larson uh, wrote a review of the sorry definitely an easy target, <laughs> yes yes I when i i i reviewed their their album on arena oh, and the crook yeah the crooks of my review was basically ah, i'll leave them off yeah like, yeah i mean i listen to it anyone. it's like, like it's like <laughs> i i know it's just yeah it's like oh, what is it it's like music that you would hear in some sort of uh, like really crap Netflix rock show, like a, or Netflix yeah. bio, bio kind of thing. Anyway, Maniskin Rush. Someone on the Discord said that they sound like the royalty, like a royalty free rock band that you hear in like yeah, deals. Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. I thought was, yeah. yeah, was fair enough. But I'm also like, ah, they're not hurting anyone. Like <laughs> no one's taking them seriously as musicians, I don't think, except Tom Morello. And with that in mind, anyway. with that in mind, um, I'm going to read out some of Jeremy D. Larson's uh, lovely review today a very entertaining review so good um of maniskin's album rush so here we go here's some of it uh rush maniskin's first album recorded mainly in english is absolutely terrible at every conceivable level vocally grating <laughs> lyrically unimaginative and musically one-dimensional it is a rock album that sounds worse the louder you play it ouch Brilliant. with everything going on in the Brilliant. world don't you wish rock music was horny again don't you wish more albums <laughs> featured Tom Morello phoning in one of his octave pedal guitar solos? What if we were the first band to sing the words kiss my butt? <laughs> Don't you wish Cologne cur- commercials were longer? Don't you wish Guitar Center could win a Grammy? What, what if Max Martin worked with Wolfmother? Remember the band Foxy Shazam? Why is no one talking about how fake and phony Hollywood is? Don't you think lyrics like, oh, mama mia, spit your love on me, I'm on my knees and can't wait to drink your rain, are the kind of thing that people are just too afraid to sing nowadays. But this is the strange allure of Maniskin, a band so bad that you can't listen to their music without thinking that finally, as a culture, we've arrived at some inevitable mask Maniskin event. This must mean something. In theory, Maniskin, in their polite, politely iconoclastic, youthful, inscrutably European, anti-mainstream guys might fit under that rubric Americans once knew as alternative rock. It was a genre that conferred, in accordance with the social bylaws of the 80s and 90s, that what you liked signaled what you did not like. By owning a Sonic Youth album, you displaced the energy that otherwise would have been consumed by a Spin Doctors album. It was physics, sort of, and you build your identity around it. Maybe Maniskin's global popularity signals a return to the oppositional force that once rallied the alternative against the monocultural mainstream. Maybe Maniskin's 6.5 billion streams and counting presages, the dawn of a new rock revival. The issue is that about a decade ago, around the dawn of the streaming era, uh, alternative, as we knew it, went extinct. Consuming music on uh, streaming services made music a multiversal event. A massive conversion of listening to everything, everywhere, all at once. Genres became siloed, withering on the outside and thriving on the inside. Maniskin's begging ascended the upper reaches of the Billboard charts was not a cultural reaction to anything. It was just an anomaly. It is content without meaning. They weren't Nirvana here to wipe hair metal off the map. Their success was viewed by European reality show competitions, algorithms and cumulative advantage. They are chaos in a vacuum and we're left to make sense of a band that sounds like a parody of an early aughts enemy cover and whose whole vibe could be described as Cirque du Soleil Buckcherry. 
Their primary influence seems to be Seven Nation Army chants at a soccer game, followed closely by late-era Red Hot Chili Peppers, followed extensively by nothing. On the unbelievable Mamma Mia, the bass, guitar and vocals are performed almost entirely in martial unison. It's a fascinating choice that brings to mind fourth grade band practice or migraines. <laughs> I leave it there. Uh, go read the rest on Pitchfork if you want. That's It's uh, a very, very good review. Uh, um, Jeremy D. Larson there's, there, had fun with that one. There's kind of nothing funner than writing a really scathing review. Have you have you ever really, really dug your heel in on, on an album? Um, or a band? No, I don't think not I know, for a long time. I, I know it's not your vibe yeah. for the website, but if you were writing elsewhere or anything, have you ever really? Yeah, I think I did for State Magazine at the time. I remember writing a couple mm. of things that was like, the, yeah, there's a particular kind of energy it takes to to write a, a scathing review that um, mm. you kind of have to stop being polite and yeah. reasonable <laughs> for the sake of it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like you can't be like, yeah, well, in fairness to them, they're trying. Kind of a... You can't be like that. <laughs> no, no. Cause I, cause I know that the, the sort of most negative review that I've written um, was about an Irish artist. I won't say who it is, but um if you read my reviews on the Journal of Music, you'll find it there. Um, and there, there is, I think, especially with Irish artists, there's this yeah, temptation, we've talked about this before, to be like, ah, but you know, isn't he doing well? Or she, or they, <laughs> giving things away now. But um, but I, I, there is something very fun about it. There is. Yeah. Um, like, like writing a line like, a rock music that sounds worse the louder you listen to it is that's like just something like that I, I i could just picture the joy in his face when that line occurred to him and then he got to write it down like there's there's something very satisfying about it and you might think that's mean but you know what some music is just bad and people aren't going to learn unless <laughs> that's the role of the critic yeah you know i remember i did a um, uh, first listen of uh daft punks <laughs> random access memories and uh mm. obviously people hadn't heard at that point and uh it was an unusual situation to be in at first listen i guess that was the vibe at the time in 2013 and was it a first listen in a, in a room yeah. In a, yeah yeah a controlled environment i've never done one but of it those was loads, there was loads of people I've never there. had loads of people there yeah um, and I wasn't impressed and obviously people hadn't heard um, so yeah. there was a very strong reaction to that I think it was more negative review than who a, hasn't done that the, oh really yeah I'm yeah. not sure it even happens anymore um, mm. not really the kind of thing that seems to happen anymore no. maybe maybe there no. is maybe for, for massive albums that I wouldn't be interested in um, that does still happen I think I think I know someone who had who had one of them for it was like either like Westlife, one of their returns, or like boy, what were they called? Boys Life, or something like that, or maybe right. a Ronan Keaton, or or like one of those sort of you know artists. I think I know someone who who was in a room with the artist and the producer and listened to it, and then had to go and write a review of it after one listen. Um, but, yeah, obviously, you yeah, got my reviews. So that's why mine was like a first listen. It was my first impression of what I was yeah. hoping for and what I was let down mm. by. And I still pretty much stand by that. Um, yeah. Not not an album that people were expecting at the time, I think is the point. Random Access, Access Memories being, you know, Get Loki was the single and that's all anyone knew. And then it was like, Racers mm. Les, it's not going to be like that. <laughs> it's really not going to be like that. Um, I think I listened to that album exactly one time and I was like, that's fine. I never have to listen to that again. Ah, there's a few good tracks on it here and there. Um, I still like it. It sounds immaculate, so. obviously. That's the whole point of it. So it's a big, shiny, shiny object uh, with no center. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, somebody else who has been uh, going on the hate train these, this week is, uh, well, he does it pretty regularly. Steve Albini explains why he hates Steely Dan. Are one of our attacking one of the favorites here. <laughs> as he's one of your as he wants to do yeah well <laughs> a band i'm fine you're with. fine with i'm yeah I'm fine with them. i did have i did enjoy reading his uh his thoughts on on steely dan basically mm. uh he will always be the kind of punk that shits on steely dan christ the amount of human effort, effort wasted to sound like an snl warm-up band <laughs> i think it's pretty good <laughs> look at yourselves calling them the dan go trim your beard will not Music made yeah. for the sole purpose of letting the wedding band stretch out a little. Uh, I had a lot of fun reading that. Like he's he's having fun himself. <laughs> uh, but look, 
They're a great band. Sorry. Sorry. They're a great band. You're wrong. Steel Bambini. Crank- Dirty Work is a great Cranky song. Cranky old man. I'll say that. <laughs> The Strokes are releasing a singles and B-sides box set thing, right? And this is where this yes. idea came from. We were like, oh, look at this. This is interesting. Mm. Um, so we were going to talk about some of the Strokes material. Yeah, so really. I, w- I was going to do, you know, the, in the same way as we've done a Steely Dan episode, a George Michael episode and a Paul Simon episode, I was going to do the Strokes episode, which, you know, 199 episodes in. It's overdue. I know that. I'm aware of that. But it, that just wasn't the episode that happened once I started wasn't, wasn't writing and thinking. And it just wasn't, it wasn't the day for it. Yeah. Um, and I will, it will happen down the line. But um, yeah, so the Strokes are releasing um, singles and B-sides from their first three albums. 2001's Is This It, 2003's Room on Fire, and 2006 is uh, First Impressions of Earth. And this is the first of three of these box sets that they're going to do. So there's going to be more to come with their kind of mid-career and late-career uh, singles. I imagine there'll be more than enough people skipping the mid-career ones, but, you know... Um, completionists, uh, the idea of which we'll get onto in a little bit, um, might want to go for all of it. But uh, yeah, I thought this was just kind of a good opportunity to look at. I guess I guess it's the B-sides that, that jumped out at me in particular and the idea that we, we really don't have them anymore. And I was thinking about whether or not we even have singles anymore um, that aren't TikTok sounds, you know, um, and what is the role of the single and the B side, especially in a yeah, well, that's uh, it. It's such a format like re- like records, um, like forty fives. Like, what what is their role within this kind of vinyl re- resurgence or vinyl revival, whatever, whatever way you want to do it? So, I mean, I put into the Discord. I asked the Discord, you know, what are your favorite B sides? And so many people had just had them to hand, you know, just had them like. In, in their head, like, yeah, this is my favorite B-side. And it's not something you can do very much with, I guess, modern music. Because there's there's a lot of very famous mm. ones, you know. There's like, there's God Only, God Only Knows Where the Beach Boys was a B-side. Good Riddance Time of Your Life by Green Day was a B-side of a German edition of the single yeah. Brain Stew, which neither I nor anybody else has ever heard, I believe. Maggie May by Rod Stewart was a, uh, was a B-side. Fool's Gold by the Stone Roses, We Will Rock You by Queen um, was the B-side of We're the Champions. You Can't Always Get What You Want was the B-side of Hunk okay. Junk Woman. And Born Slippy Nooks, Nooks um, by Underworld was the B-side to just Born Slippy. Um, so that's the, in, in, in the kind of era when the B-side is kind of just like a remix or like a, a different kind of interpolation of the track. Um, and then obviously... You know, all of those songs arguably are the more famous of the songs that they were, with the exception of one or two, um, that they were the kind of the B-side of. Um, But yeah, I'll give you a little history of the B-side, if you like. B-sides, like in the 1960s, um, singles or 45s were what was primarily bought and sold with the music industry. Albums didn't... perform very well in terms of sales and singles made up the majority of kind of physical well there were only physical music music sales back then and then in the late 1960s um i think it was 1968 the total production of album units surpassed total production of singles units and you can also look at the kind of the role of the album in the 1960s, how that changed um, with, you know, bands like the Beach Boys and bands like the Beatles. Um, 
and the album became you know the object um and then albums kind of took over but b-sides were you know they were the they were the other song um i was noting in the discord that john and paul um as in my good friends paul mccartney and john lennon um they they would argue about which song was going to be the the a side and the b side so that's like kind of it's 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 kind of argued where double a sides first properly started but it's due to kind of things like that where you, you if you're a label or a distributor you don't really want to you know advertise the fact that one of these songs is a bit less important than the other because it kind of seems like you're getting a bit less value so if you have a double a side um then you're like oh here's here's two songs you know and you might be able to charge a charge a little bit more and i mean i think even in like the 90s and the 2000s like b-sides were a thing long after vinyl was the main oh yeah source i of... mean cd singles one and two you know yeah it's yeah, a format on, specific thing on cds i i remember i remember like when i'd buy singles early 2000s when i first started buying my own music i'd buy singles and it would be the song and then a remix of the song and then a second remix of the song and then a b-side so you're kind of getting yeah, four lucky. four tracks yeah and then they lucky, changed the rules i think then after that it, it, like a single had to be no more than they reduced it i think it became three and then it became two i think definitely three max at yeah one point. i think with with compact discs you saw a bit of kind of um uh there, there was less wiggle room because there was less room that you could kind of play around with on it whereas if you have like because they're kind of digitally pressed as opposed to a 45 where it's like oh well we only have so much room for a song on this and this is why songs have to be this length still more room know, than a vinyl, uh, 45 mile for sure yeah though. exactly yeah yeah so there was there was a bit of wiggle room with um with um the digital pressing but yeah, it's weird. It, uh, and then with tapes, you had your A and B side because there's only so much tape in a tape. Um, so you'd usually just get you'd just get your two songs. But yeah, then you know, in the in the two thousands, um, streaming came along. Um, and I mean, the vinyl revival now, I think, is something that we can we kind of take for granted. Um, it's it sort of started like as early as 2007. That's as that's as early as it was starting to be reported anyway. Um, and well, vinyl has had its 15th year of growth. Um, that That's a fact. Vinyl has recorded its 15th year of growth 2022 and overtook CDs in terms of ven- revenue for the first time in 35 years. Not that anyone will be super surprised by that yeah i'm sure yeah. cd yeah it's not it's not it's not cds or downwards yeah it's not it's not cds or cassettes that it's um that it's battling against it's it's streaming it's it's uh the the kind of access that we have to music now um is completely unprecedented and would have been absolutely unimaginable to anybody you know in the 60s 70s 80s or you know even the early 90s um but yeah, so I mean, it's the, the the revival of vinyl has been mostly focused on albums. You don't tend to see a lot of singles being released. Um, that's why I kind of wanted to talk about it in terms of this box set, because it's not, you know, it'd be very easy to just do like a special edition of the three albums together or something. But it's it's the singles that is um, that are being that are being released, which I find interesting. And I mean... So it is a collection of seven inches, right? It's like um, all the artwork for each original release yeah. um, replicated. So the first 10 singles, basically, that they ever released. That's it, with yeah. the B-sides of them and live versions as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's... I The, the, the idea is that if you, if you bought it then or now, you'd basically have the same, the same object. Um, which... Which is obviously, you know, it's it's appealing to people who are collectors of music. But I suppose m- what I'm wondering about it is like what what happens to the idea of B-sides and and rarities, especially. They're, they're two things that we see kind of put together so often. What happens to those concepts when everything is available to stream online and it takes the same amount of time and effort and resources 
to listen to a B-side or a rarity as it does to listen to the hits? Like, is there even such a thing as B-sides and rarities in the age of streaming? Or does the vinyl revival kind of fill a gap felt by collectors of music and kind of nobody else? Hmm. In this case, the Strokes one anyway, I had a look earlier and obviously a lot of these B-sides are not on streaming or digital mm. services. Maybe they will. A lot of them after were release. removed. A lot of them right, were removed. they were removed. Yeah. Okay, see, so creating uh, actual scarcity. Scarcity, yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting, yeah, because a lot of them are still obviously on YouTube and you can just, if you want, you can listen to anything you ever want on YouTube. Mm. But it's scarcity that creates the value for these things. I, I have a... I actually own a seven inch of Fontaine's Liberty Bells seven inch that I looked up recently and it is probably worth 350 quid. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So those are the kind of things that like, you're like, oh, look, uh, I have that and I didn't know I had it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and like you take it off. I don't know if that adds any value to it in terms of its uh, financial value, taking it off. But mm. what it does is create, oh, I want this. I can't listen to it on Tidal or Spotify or Apple Music yeah. or whatever. So therefore... I want to own it. But the kind of people that are buying this anyway are the kind of people who want, who are the completists, like you say. Exactly, yeah. And I think it, it there's also the nostalgia factor. Like, not only are you going to experience these tracks again as singles, which is like, if if anyone listens to singles, if anyone listens to Seven Inches often, and I, I, I doubt a lot of people actually do. I mean, I, I, I listen to records like almost every day on my record player be very very rare that i'd actually put on a single because it's a completely different listening experience you know you get you, you you get one song and then you have to stand up again um but it does kind of make you focus on that song a little bit more like it is it is a different kind of listening experience and i think that that kind of nostalgia um marketing plays into it with with things like this strokes release you know because you're not only experiencing it again as like a single as an object that you have bought but it's also in the format that maybe you weren't able to afford it at the time or you missed out on it because you were buying other music and you were spending your money elsewhere or you were too young or you didn't own a record player whatever it is but i think that what i find really interesting about the kind of the the decline in i guess cultural value of b-sides and rarities um and i guess just the cultural value of like ha- owning and having a lot of music like this is something that i'm sure you you've experienced over the years like you've been djing for a long time oh, yeah over there. but you know like the the sort of there's there's a certain amount of kind of cultural and industry capital that comes along with with owning music when you're a DJ like you know the idea of crate digging the idea of having a kind of a a rare track that you can play at like dur- during a set that maybe nobody else yeah. is going to have or you know there's there was a lot of DJs during the kind of like vinyl like the like vinyl DJing era who wouldn't share what the song was if you went up and asked yeah, them. Yeah, like they, if, they if, would they, if it really it, mattered know? to them, mm. they would sometimes uh, cover in tape what the uh, label yeah. was. So you yeah. couldn't actually see what it was. And obviously we have Shazam now, so you can mostly find out. You can't always yeah. find out what that rare track is, but most of the time I'd say, well, when it comes to that kind of old stuff, it's harder to know exactly, but a uh, uh, good chance you'll find it on Shazam. <laughs> yeah so that that sort of gatekeeping was was removed once once streaming became available to to everybody in a reasonable sense you know 9.99 for a spotify premium account is pretty accessible to most people in the west um and i think that removing the kind of b-sides and rarities or remixes from the hands of gatekeepers who like they, they they might be DJs, they might be people who have higher incomes and can afford to collect records. They might be men who are traditionally more likely to be kind of embraced and allowed into the space of record store environments than women are. You know, people like like DJs and, and music collectors who are willing to kind of devote resources, time, energy, and money to the discovery of music and and you know the the extent to which that they're going to share that with people is kind of based on what their relationship to their own kind of gatekeeping is and and therefore to their own kind of sense of cultural capital and i feel like it's not a coincidence a coincidence that the availability of like digital recordings 
um, as opposed to physical recordings also coincided with a rise in more women who were DJing. Like the industry just became a lot more egalitarian in terms of actually like being able to access music during this time, because that's like a major and it still is to an extent a major barrier for for women who are DJing, you know, is that is the kind of the access to those kind of like gatekeeper environments. So like I think it's just interesting to think about, you know, when when we have like streaming, like we have these like recommender algorithms that can and do, you know, if you're using if you're using something like Spotify, they kind of curate a music taste for you. Um, and that's done through, you know, those editorial playlists, the New Music Weekly, you know, best rapper or R&B and the very kind of personalized playlists as well. So it's like, what is the what, what what is that doing to people's kind of sense of of their own like music taste? And is the vinyl revival an opportunity for people to kind of like reestablish their roles as gatekeepers or f- to allow to, to kind of hold a new or a different kind of like cachet when it comes to collecting music that we kind of missed out on for about a decade there. So that's just what I'm thinking about today. And I, do, I don't know what the answers are, but I'm just putting those questions out, you know. I do think a lot of the time the idea of vinyl as this cool thing is maybe overstated. I think it's actually quite a personal thing for a lot of people. Mm. You know, it's something they do at home. It's something they... You know, you can see now, um, well, Andrea can see right behind me, there is a wall of vinyl here. Mm. I went through it actually all last night because I was looking for, I have I have a record player in the living room and I have a lovely stand that my partner got me and there's about, you can fit about 50 on it, 40 or 50. And I decided to take the rotation out of the ones that I had or the recent ones I bought and put new ones on it because they're ones I want to listen to. So they're kind of like my listening. They're mm. like my playlist, essentially. But they also and I really sort of like work as an, as an art piece in your living room. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you choose the one that you want to look at um, mm. for a while. And then I just changed them all yesterday behind me. You can see Kate LeBon and uh, yeah. looking at your pager and uh, Solwax and... Uh, Portishead, <laughs> Roisin Murphy. I can't remember. I can't see what else there. Uh, but anyway, there's just it's Twin Peaks. There's loads of things there that I just I want to. It's nice to look at. It's nice mm. to see. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it is a personal thing. It is also like we everything is ephemeral when it's digital. Everything is so ephemeral. You could mm. barely remember what you own or what you have or what you've seen. That's why. For film now, we have things like Letterbox, where you're like, "Oh, I've seen that film. Yes, I remember. I've seen that film." And mm. um, something that even in I'm still a member of Last FM. I've had it for so long because I yeah. really want to know what I've listened to, and I think it's something that we still actually aside we are lacking in music now. Mm. Is like this is my jam. Do you remember that kind of a yeah. service where people are like sharing what they actually are listening to? Um. And for the social thing, that's they're certainly not really there as much. Well, but I, I think, think for most people. It, the I, vinyl thing is really personal. It's like home listening. It's something that they can physically, it's a tactile thing. Hmm. It's, that's the fun part of it. It's always been the fun part of it for me anyways, the the physical uh, nature of it. And then the artwork that comes with it. I remember you were asking about B-sides that I loved. Um, I always loved the Super Fire Animals, uh, the Welsh band and their B-sides. And they always had lovely seven inch uh, singles that came with uh, artwork, first of all, by Pete Fowler. Um, who did all their artwork pretty much all all the way through? They had great B sides as well, really good B sides. But then the you know the the cover would fold out into a full poster as well, so you put it on your wall. So they did so many great ones, and uh, that's what you were looking for um, around that time. You were like it's the excitement of of the tactility and the the design mm-hmm. of it all. It's great. Yeah, I mean, a, like a a record collection for for a long time was a means to kind of signal something about yourself you know like music music is such a part of how we kind of form and express identities whether that's through you know you're, you're wearing a, a gilaban jumper today or if you put up uh, or if you if you tell your friends that you're going to see this gig or you're currently listening to this band like these are all ways that we kind of like form our own kind of cultural identities and i think the the, the role of the record collection in that and, and and not just you know when people come over to your house and and you know they they can see the record collection it used to be before before music was as available to everybody as as it is now even just knowing 
what the B-side to, I don't know, name a song. <laughs> Even just knowing that the B-side to Good Vibrations is, is um, yeah. God only knows or, or or whatever it is, um that that is that holds a kind of a cultural value because you're signifying to somebody that like you either own this or you're in a community that like kind of allows you access to this information, right? But with streaming, that that kind of it, it flattened that. And my my theory now is that the 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 response to that, the kind of the modern record collection um and sharing of the record collection is actually spotify wrapped at the end of at uh, at the end of the year like that's that's a means by which to kind of to signal to people like like not not only like you know it's 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 a way of kind of saying this is how much music i own in that kind of like i have a massive vinyl record collection way but by you know you're you're sharing how many minutes you've spent listening to music in a given year how quote-unquote obscure the bands in your top five most stream art streamed artists are and even you know what it is that you're expressing about yourself based on the gender the race and the genre diversity in the data that you're that you're sharing with people you know so it's it's like we we've still found a way to uh to perform our our record collections to people and i don't mean perform in in you know the, the word performative has become sort of like an insult these days and i don't mean that at all i think i think everybody kind of performing their music taste as uh, as a part of their identity um it's it's a completely natural and human thing to do um but i think that maybe when we're thinking about like the vinyl revival and the return of this kind of physical distribution of music. You know, we have to remember that that costs money. It costs, I don't know. I mean, what was what was the last record you bought? Um, last record I bought, I bought a load of, uh, like, looking at your pager there, mm. uh, Two Shell, um, probably like 12-inch, like, dance singles mostly. Yeah. And then album-wise, like, uh, Motomami Rosalia maybe is one of the most recent ones and that probably set you back like 30 35 quid they're like 25 quid at least yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I bought I bought the new 1975 album I think it cost 32 quid um so like they're not they're not cheap objects you know 28 I, quid yeah yeah and, and and they weren't always as expensive as they are now even relative to kind of people's income um they are very very expensive now and i think they should be expensive because of the kind of the resources it takes to to make them in terms of the environment but it also means that you know there's there's still a way to kind of express and reproduce cultural and class identities that are kind of largely removed in a world where streaming um and especially kind of mp3s uh which were you know for a few years there was the wild buddy west and everybody was just downloading things for free um like your kind of cultural and class identity in that world is a little bit more flattened than in a world where it actually costs you money to to kind of curate and express your your music identity to people like like so like streaming is still the dominant form of music consumption. I think 6% of global music sales is made up of records, of vinyl records. But like like, like you said, it's still rising. Taylor Swift's Midnight's last year um, was uh, had its physical release surpassed digital sales, um, which was the first album to do that in a very, very long time. Um, it sold over a million LPs in the US by January 2023 and is the only album in the 21st century to do so. So like there is an amazing appetite for albums when it comes to the vinyl revival, but singles haven't seen the same kind of attention, which I which I think is so interesting about about this release from the strokes. I wonder if they were to release the singles, you know, in a like kind of on their own would there be as much of an appetite for it is it is it the kind of the collector's edition you know 
idea of having a box set of these things that is appealing um, oh, or yeah, is more absolutely. likely to have people I mean, you're spending them, 120 you know? quid on this. Mm. You're going to, like, it's not bad considering you get 10, but at the same time, it is expensive enough. <laughs> like, you know? It is. Um, but yeah, it is. Uh, I think that, yeah, but singles are really nostalgia for me, I think. And mm. they always will be. Even most recently, funny, I'm wearing the Gilliband uh, uh top today uh gilband uh do seven inches a lot on uh, true rough trade and they actually released their b-side this week uh mm. <laughs> from eight fivers and the reason they did that was uh to, as promo for some tour dates um, and yeah. so the song went on uh, uh streaming services this week and uh, it's called sports day and it was there because they had something to announce and something they wanted to market with so it's mm. really just a promotional item, so that was interesting. To I feel that. I feel that cassettes are used in in that way as well. I mean, I don't. I know a lot of people who are buying cassettes these days, and the art, artists are re- releasing them. I don't know anybody, anyone, and I've asked who is listening to those cassettes. And I'm not saying that you're not out there. I, I believe people if they say that they're listening to cassettes in their car, or if they have a cassette player at home, or whatever it is. But to me, the the kind of cassette revival if you can call it that which I don't really think you can uh, in the same way but that that is also a kind a kind of a promotional tool a kind of a a marketing tool um so that somebody can own you know a little object that also has kind of a lot of nostalgic value and it's something you can display quite easily yeah. in your house because it's very small it's it's like a little conversation yeah i've got a few of them like, oh, I don't like, I, I, it's really hard to dig it out obviously yeah you don't even have a, i probably don't it even is. have a pair of headphones that's wired anymore and uh like a hand do you know what i mean yeah like and my yeah. car yeah uh, is bluetooth now so i don't i don't need uh that anymore yeah, I mean, but the 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 Gen Zers are bringing back wired earphones. Why? They, Why? Um, <laughs> What's I, wrong I, with I, them? I do not pretend to. <laughs> to I mean, they're young. They might just be losing their their wireless ears. You know, like the little earbuds that I have yeah. in here. Um, thank you, One Sonic. Um, but um, yeah, like so that's coming back because it obviously holds a bit of nostalgic value. And I mean, you can't you can't also discount the how stylish those early apple earphones were the True. white ones you know remember those 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 iPod everybody wants commercials them. they were amazing you know I, I remember um i remember one of my teachers giving us a talk in school not a talk but like saying to us in school like if you own them you shouldn't walk around with them in because people will be able to tell you have an i an ipod and they'll steal it from you <laughs> you're just advertising that you own I an mean, ipod never since then i've <laughs> Yeah, I've always been afraid to wear like wired earphones ever since then. She scared me straight. But, you know, yeah, like the the, the nostalgia machine is, you know, you can't stop it. And it is coming for um, it's it's past the 90s now. It's the it's the 2000s that it's coming for now, you know, um, the kind of Y2K fashion and all of that stuff. And yeah, I wonder, will will singles be? The thing that comes next, I genuinely cannot see a young person with the kind of attention span that is kind of, you know, routine in millennials and in Gen Zers. And I have a suspicion that's probably worse in Gen Zers um, listening to to a single, you know, and going through all that effort <laughs> just to listen to it. Yeah, well, I guess you know? it depends. Like sometimes it's songs that people want more than the the albums themselves so there's some particular song mm. um that they want as a single or something to own maybe you can say that the other part of it is though mm. that uh, leads into that maybe is just the the weighted pre- pressing plants or to actually like produce those kind of singles and and albums albums are the one with the biggest uh, markup so therefore that's what um people are focusing on a lot of the time you know it's interesting mm. i think there was a article a few months ago uh or actually last month called uh, did the music business just kill the vinyl revival from ted gioa mm. it was talking about it coming to the vinyl revival as a, a an entrepreneur basically saying what this is what you need to do if you want to keep this thing going which is like you want to keep the vinyl revival going i already i already don't trust this guy yeah. i'm just gonna say well that. this is just like this is like you know market principles or like business principles and you add manufacturing capacity aggressively 
you bring costs down by getting scale advantages. You constantly reduce prices to keep you demand building. Uh, you keep spanning the product line. You invest in R&D. Uh, but what did the music industry do, he says? They hate running factories, which is hard work, so they tried to outsource manufacturing instead of building it themselves. Chronic shortages resulted. The- Unless you're Sony. So, so Sony ma- manufactured their own records since, yeah, since the mid-2010s. Well, that's so smart. They refused to spend money yeah. on R&D, so they stayed with the same vinyl technology, but people like the vinyl technology. That's not the problem here, Mr. Ted. Um, yeah. Yeah. He says they want easy money, so they kept prices extremely high. That was bizarre because their R&D and catalogue acquisition costs were essentially zero and they could have had price vinyl aggressively. Instead, they treat vinyl as a luxury product, even as they dreamed of it becoming a mass market option. But you can't do both without a careful market segmentation strategy, which the labels never even started thinking about. They love hype, so they focused on high visibility vinyl reissues, which looks good in press releases, but couldn't be bothered to make back catalogue albums available. I think that sounds like a very particular gripe he has there about some album. Yeah, but the, but also they do make back catalog albums available. Like just look at Record Store Day and the amount of um, the amount of reissues that come around at like Record Store Day time. Yeah, it is interesting to, to note somebody giving out though. It's good. I like it. I mean, yeah. He look. He he has a point about the industry, but I think his gripes with the industry is his gripes with kind of you know the broader capitalist structure. You know, <laughs> like the solution to all of that is nationalized vinyl plants, but that's not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> but like, but yeah, I mean, like they're they're expensive because they have to be. Like they're they're incredibly resource heavy. Um, they they cost a lot of money. Because they have to, you know, and, and they are an object of art and they are, you know, they, they are some they are something physical that you own. And I think increasingly that is becoming important to people. I know a lot of people who are starting to buy um, their favorite films and their favorite television shows on Blu-ray now. Because um, they disappear. Because of the, yeah, because of the risk that they're, that they're just going to disappear from from streaming and and like, and, and that is, that's a really sad thing because you know you'd think that the advent of streaming and digital technologies not that they're completely without their own environmental impact but you'd imagine that that would mean that we you know it it would it would mean that we would have to buy less objects that are going to eventually end up in landfill but that's not what's happening at all so people are being driven back to owning their their own um physical objects of art so as so as not to be beholden to you know co- streaming contracts and studios and labels and all of the kind of messy stuff that goes on with actually distributing art um in in the era of streaming which i i, I do find that really interesting yeah like it I, is. I was thinking recently of like what i want to buy on dvd like just in case things disappear um from the many, many, many streaming platforms that I'm currently paying for, you know. Well, that's like, the problem, isn't it? The segmentation is there. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what we're talking about. Mm. And that's the problem with, uh, you know, you keep seeing headlines about uh, certain shows being taken off streaming because, you know, they're being probably going to end up somewhere else. And you're like, well, where does it end? I don't, want a, I don't want a subscription to seven or five or six different streaming services. So no. at some point you're just going to be like, nah, I'm out. Bye. Um, so... They all yeah. want a bit of your money <laughs> and and therefore they're making their own product worse in terms of selection. It's like, you know, mm. why it's like And taking fewer risks. As imagine well. if, you know, the three big major labels all had their own streaming services and you had to and then an independent one. Do you know what I mean? Imagine we all well, don't speak it. <laughs> don't speak it. Okay. Because you you might manifest that into being. That would that would that would genuinely, I think, kill. Uh, no, sorry, <laughs> it would. It wouldn't kill the music industry. It would be very, very profitable for the music industry. But good God, that would that would be really, really terrifying and disappointing. Yeah. And I really hope there's not a boardroom somewhere where that conversation is. Well, it's too late now because uh, thankfully, uh, one thing, whatever you think about Spotify, one thing we have to thank for Spotify for, in a way, is that it did a much better job than any of the labels could have done themselves. Again, come back to that idea of uh, innovation. Uh, the tech sector did it mm. first, so therefore they got on board. Well, I mean, I don't know, like, I I, I guess I, I, at least when you're talking about physical sales, the artist is, is getting 
money. I just mean you the know? product. Like, I with, mean the what, the, the yeah. user interface. Yeah, product. in ter- in terms of sir, in terms of serving not talking the, about the licensing the, the issues, not getting products. enough money for yes. artists, all that stuff. And yeah. actually, but but I mean, like, is is it is it a good product if down the line, you know, we we might see more more Joni Mitchells or Joanna Newsoms or I can't remember who else took their music off Spotify, but like, I th- I, I think they're there is probably going to come a point where musicians will realize that it is just not profitable to have their music on Spotify. And they're probably better off just taking it off entirely if you're a big musician with the backing of a label and so on. But, you know, it's like, I, 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 I don't feel like streaming in its current format is sustainable. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, that's people, obviously something we've talked will about not want to, <laughs> a few yeah, times. Like it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, so it's there, there, there is a fundamental issue with the product. And then on the other side of things with with um, with physical releases, there are other fundamental issues with the product. You know, they're they're marked up a certain amount. They're bad for the environment. They're you know, they're breakable. If you leave one on a windowsill, it'll warp. You know, they, they're objects that can be broken. So, yeah, there's there, there must be some kind of middle ground, I guess. And I guess that's probably Bandcamp, is it? You know? Well, Bandcamp is obviously great for artists. But the other thing we're talking about in terms of vinyl, mentioning in terms of the vinyl revival, is that bands can really, it's a great cash flow for bands uh, who are touring, mm. if they are touring. Obviously, there's a lot of issues yeah. in terms of bands touring at the moment. I saw Santi Golds announcing something, saying she can't 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 afford to tour in the current environment, um. But on a practical level, a band can sell four hundred and five hundred quid merch, uh, and some of that vinyl at a show. Um, obviously they have to put up the money in the first place in order to pay for it if they've gone independently to do that. Um, but it can be a very lucrative way of a band making cash for their upcoming, whatever they're doing, tours or otherwise, which is great because um, you know most gigs wouldn't sell wouldn't spend that much necessarily or you wouldn't earn that much from gigs so it can be great if a band is on the way up if people actually want to own their music it can be a great way for bands to make a few quid once they make yeah. back their initial investment yeah yeah i think i i i think the the industry i mean specifically in with like pressing is still in a really kind of rocky space when it comes to stuff like that. I mean, some artists have greater access to getting their their LP pressed yeah. um, than others do. Like we talked about this with the Adele kind of controversy. And she was by no means the only major label um, artist who was kind of, you know, clogging up resources you know we saw the same thing with taylor swift as well but it is it's labels and pressing plants are now starting to have these deals where they are kind of like their artists are prioritized so there are way fewer resources to press albums that aren't going to kind of have that same return on investment than if you are with universal or whoever it might be you know so there's still yeah there's still a lot of like access issues around this and then as well there's a lot of like reissues of albums that i don't know are they are they needed not not with this strokes thing but like if the strokes put out you know a a reissue of is this it for record store day or something I often wonder, like, do we need that? Do we not have enough copies of that record in the world that, you know, they, they, they're they kind of just in circulation on like secondary markets or or, or whatever it is? Like, could could those resources not be better? Yeah, well, better I, I presume you, I think there was a lot of very negative um, repressing of vinyl for a record store day in re- previous years, you would hope, you know, all you have to do is look at Discogs and see how much, uh, if you're looking as a label to see whether there's demand for a, mm. a reissue on vinyl and they're at the moment yeah. the strike strokes marketplace the 788 ver- copies of the album for sale from yeah. 28 yeah. cent um and now some of those are cd so yeah. let's have a look at vinyl there's 587 of them are, are vinyl 187 mm. They're going for reasonable enough, actually, um, in terms of new records uh, from. Yeah. Yeah, they're all but seem I mean, to be new. So, so recently, there's loads out there. Um, recently there, was an, there was an announcement that Frank Ocean's Blonde was going to get That's reissued right, yeah. finally. 
Um, and I was like, oh, well, there goes the the value of my my blonde LP. But like... But it's also really hard yeah, to get. Yeah, I, I, I guess I can... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very difficult. Um, they're, they're, that's, that's going for like quite a bit of money. On, 160 on quid Discord, plus, but, more like 200. Yeah. Um, oh, when, when I checked it, like, I'd say maybe a year ago, there was some up there going for like two and a half grand. Right. Like, yeah. Well, the, like the older version from 2016 is going for double that anyway, from 368 yeah. quid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's actually come down, and that's probably because of the announcement that that there's going to be more pressed. But I mean, there's also like, like are are these going to feel the same to somebody? Like, if you have a record store like repressing of an album, like it's it isn't the original. And I feel like if you're the type of person who who really just wants to seek down, like seek out that that original copy, then you're gonna you're going to do that, you know? So I think it is, it's, it's satisfying, it's satisfying like a portion of the market, uh, which I can understand, but there are going to be people who are like, no, I want that help, you know, first pressing from the 1960s, you know, um, which is fair, you know, it's like, I'm not, um, I hope I don't sound like I'm being negative about people who collect records or collect. Oh, look, but it's everyone's like personal choice. If um, you want, if you want the original, original exactly. I, I mean, fine. But I, I do it, you know. I'd like, much rather a um, lovely brand new um, pressing of a vinyl. It's just probably going to be a heavier weight, um, better listening experience. I have, I actually have, somebody for my 40 had actually bought me a copy of the, um, uh, what was it? Uh, the Kate Bush album. Um, Hands of Love? Uh, yes, Hounds of Love. And I had the I have I had a cheaper version, a flimsy like eighties version, which was probably mm. like two or three quid, but it was a really scratchy and uh sounded shit. <laughs> so it's nice to have that now. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Um, but obviously they paid a lot more for, for sure. that than I did originally, which was like about two fifty. Yeah. Um, that's B side. what's your favorite B side? Do you have one? Um from the st- oh Generally. um it's pro- it's probably going to be a Radiohead one. I think was was Man of War a, a B side? Sounds like it. I have it on my on my B sides. So it was it was re it was released when Radiohead did their twentieth anniversary OK Computer um, re release called OK Not OK, and there was I think like eight tracks that were re released, and Man of War was one of them, um, and it's amazing, um, but. Yeah, I have I have a playlist on my Spotify. I shared it in the um in the thing earlier, the Discord um of my favorite my favorite Radiohead B-sides. They have so many. Um and I did state in there that Faithless the Wonder Boy was my favorite. <laughs> I don't think that's true. It's probably Man of War, but um Radiohead have like tons and tons of B-sides that I just absolutely love. And I do find it so interesting that they're often on playlists that are like B-sides and rarities, even though there's no such thing as a B-side or a rarity these days, um, which is interesting. But yeah, do you have a favorite um, B-side? Nice. Uh, I mentioned it before I am, there, John. I think uh, Smoking up there is up there, one of their one of my favorite B-sides in general. And then I'm trying to remember others. I'm, I'm going to have to think about that a bit more. Um, I found it, find it hard to think of other b-side bands other than the ones i like i i had there's a lot of dc boy stuff but a lot of them was their remixes or different versions there's not some really amazing ones out there probably mm. but the super yamas when i was listening to them today there's they are on streaming services in uh, the form of the radiator 20th anniversary in terms of the b-sides mm. they're all there uh and there's some great stuff there <laughs> song called foxy music um about uh, a red-headed boy who gets shot by a, a farmer um, because he thinks he's a fox. <laughs> ah. <laughs> There's a lot of silliness going on in the B-side sometimes, mm. you know. But there was some great stuff in the Discord as well, if you want to have a look at that. It is... Uh, you want you want access to the Discord? You have to join. You have to come through me first. It's patreon.com forward slash nine. And we keep the Discord private, not public, so that it doesn't get overwhelmed and, and people get to know each other and, uh, uh, you know, there's not crazy... Uh, <laughs> Is this shade? <laughs> uh, conversations. No, no, okay. I, but no, not at all. Like, District have a... 
have a Discord that they capped at 500 yeah. people and some of the conversations in there were wild yeah. in the first week. I was like, okay. No, you want you want you want a manageable space that you can uh drop into and not be like, well, there's 700 messages and I'm just going to forget yeah. it. Uh but no, I think it, it works well at the moment. We've got about 80 to 100 people maybe in there. Um at, at different times, uh there's probably 15 or so people online. Yeah. Um, so it's not all, it's not every day, it's not every minute, but it's it suits me, and that's the way I like it. Yeah, I was I was talking so to someone recently about the Discord, and I was saying like how it it completely beats the odds in that absolutely every single person in it is sound, and I'm like, you know, statistically, some people shouldn't be sound, <laughs> but literally everyone is sound. So yeah, come on in, it's a really nice vibe. Uh, come in through the Patreon. And it's not only that, Niall also makes playlists and does loads of other stuff for, um, for patrons. Did a fair few free ticket giveaways. Free ticket giveaways, you know. Um, this last the odd, weeks, the so, odd, um, yeah, the odd pre-sale code gets thrown around in there as well if, if people are looking for those. So, um, yeah, come on in. It's a nice yeah. vibe. Colin was the man for that. <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, that's it from us this week. Uh, episode 199, Feeling Fine. Uh, back next week to talk about God knows what. Any ideas, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> but that's it. Niall and Andrea here. Thanks for listening to the Nile Nine podcast. Bye.